0: This is Popaganda, the feminist response to pop culture podcast. I'm Sarah Merck. Ooh. Ooh. Today on Propaganda, we bring you stories of change. We've got stories about gender in the comics industry and representations of transgender people in pop culture. But to ease us into the show, we'll start with a short story about a singer. When I first heard Amelia Meath's music, she was in a band called Mountain Man. In that group, three women sang haunting folk tunes, mostly acapella. They sounded like this. Love. Now, Amelia is using her powerful voice to create an entirely different sound.
1: The modern world,
2: he's kinder, but we...
0: In her band Sylvan Esso, Amelia's voice winds through songs that meld folk and electronica. Sylvan Esso, which is a collaboration with Amelia and producer Nick Sanborn, has songs that are both simple and complex. Amelia's voice cuts like a beam of light through rich layers of synthesizers and driving beats. The music is all about change, transforming one sound and feeling at the beginning to an entirely different vibe by the end, blending human elements with sounds that only a robot could produce. Sylvan Esso's first album came out last year and they're on tour right now. They're playing Bonnaroo this weekend. But Amelia was nice enough to take time to talk to me from the back seat of a taxi cab in Nashville.
2: We begin with like the tiny seed of an idea that either one of us has that has like disappeared in, you know, either like a line that I've written or a tiny little couple of bars that Nick has made and then we grow the idea outwards. So it's sort of like one of those little um, gummy things that you put in water and then it expands. And we don't, you know, we don't settle on anything unless it feels right. It's all very intuitive based.
0: Well, I think it's interesting that it's so driven by intuition because it feels so, to me as a listener, it feels really like smooth. It feels like it's all really come together. It doesn't feel raw at all, your music. That's nice. That's good to hear. <laughs> or, well, I don't know. I mean,
2: rawness is wonderful. We don't use autotune or anything like that, so it's nice to hear that it feels smooth, even though it's really, I think of it as very human electronic music.
0: Get up, get down. Get up, get down. Feel the Oh, my words will dry on the skin how do you try and keep human elements in yeah in, in your electronic sound well we keep the times that we mess
2: up we don't use automation that much just to keep it to make you to make it feel as if it's being played by humans because it is
0: you keep the times when you mess up I, I can't think of a time when I've heard your song and been like oh that notes off or that that doesn't sound good
2: oh the well not when I like horribly messed up but there's a lot of like (laughs) wavering and breathing and you can hear the room a lot and you can, you know, that sort of
0: stuff. How do you feel like you use your voice differently now that you're singing for a, a background of electronica and produced beats versus Acoustic guitar and, and a folk feel the power lives in a different place Because when you're simply using your voice you
2: can you have the ear of the people who are listening now It's it's just definitely I'm playing with the beats and working working with the sounds as opposed to playing with those The tones and vibrations of Molly and Alexander who were in mountain man with me But it's you know, I don't think it's really changed that much there's definitely moments where I go into like, where I put on a funny pop mask and like do this thing, but mostly it's just I try to maintain a really human voice, and I think it was the same in Mountain Man. You know, I don't I don't want to necessarily cover it in layers of augmentation that often. Because that's the most compelling part, is listening to music and hearing a real, breathing human making.
0: You are listening to Popaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. Today, we bring you stories of transformation. In the 1990s, I grew up reading comics, and so did a lot of my friends, male and female. Calvin and Hobbes, Tintin, Grew. In elementary school, comics were a love shared by all. It wasn't until I got to high school and started going to comic book stores that I noticed something weird. Sometimes I'd go into a comic book shop, and I'd be the only girl in there. Comics, it turned out, were a boy thing. Oh, that was a surprise to me. And it wasn't always this way. Over the past 120 years, the gender dynamics of the comics industry have often been in flux. Writer Lisa Hicks researched the history of how gender in the comics industry transformed over time. She wrote a big article on the topic for Collectors Weekly. As we discussed, the image of the comics industry as having always been male-centric and male-dominated is not the whole picture. Instead, there's a lot of history that's left out of that frame. This story begins in 1895, when the New York World published the nation's first modern comic strip, Hogan's Alley, by Richard O'Kalt. Back in those days,
1: comics, around the turn of the century, comics were for everyone. And kids read them, adults read them, and it wasn't considered a male genre for people, something that only men enjoyed, or only boys enjoyed. So.
0: It, didn't, it just followed that
1: women would be able to
0: draw comics as well. Contrary to popular belief, women were part of the comics industry from the start. Just one year after the world started publishing Hogan's Alley, a 20-year-old artist named Rose O'Neill started publishing a comic in a magazine called Truth. Her comic, The Old Subscriber Calls, was about an angry newspaper reader who stops by the editorial office to wallop an editor.
1: The most popular trend at the time was to draw cute children. It was just a big fad at the time and postcards featured cute children. A lot of them were just kind of the antics of these little kids and that was the trend at the time.
0: Rose O'Neill went on from writing about angry newspaper readers to creating the iconic kid characters, the Cupies.
1: A Cupie is Um, an elven or angel creature that looks like a fat baby doll.
0: (laughs) So, like, these became dolls, they became, like, maybe the first comics merchandise. Yes, they became comic strips, they
1: became, uh, you know, they were used for advertisements, they were just tremendously popular
0: characters. She wasn't the only woman finding success in comics at the time, either.
1: Pretty quickly after Rose O'Neill, a woman whose name was Grace Gabby, she later became known as uh, Grace Drayton. She published a comic in 1903 called Naughty Toodles. Naughty Toodles? Yes, which was another cute little toddler. I mean, that sounds really dirty to us right now, but back then, (laughs) it was completely innocent. I feel like... The Naughty Tootles comic today would be very different from the <laughs> Naughty toodle yeah. comic of 1903. But uh, as Grace D- Drayton, she became very famous because she continued to draw comic strips with adorable children that had all sorts of cutesy names. And eventually she created the Campbell's Kids, which were, became very famous advertising characters. Oh, yeah,
0: those round-cheeked, rosy-faced yeah, kids who yeah. love soup. Soup, yeah, exactly. <laughs> 1910s and 20s. Women started drawing popular comics about young women having adventures in big cities. There were a couple comics featuring flappers exploring the expanding freedoms available to white women who had a bit of money at the time. Female comics artists also used their talents to support suffrage, making campaign signs and popular pro-suffrage postcards. In 1937, talented African-American artist Jackie Orms hit the scene with a comic strip about an independent and adventurous heroine named Torchy Brown. Which was about a young woman who
1: moved from the farm in the South to become a singer and dancer at the Cotton Club in New York City. And so that comic lasted about three years. And then in the 50s, uh, Jackie Orms brought Torchy Brown back in a comic strip known as Heartbeats. And this one was more of an action-adventure comic strip, but it dealt with race segregation and environmental issues in
0: a way most comic strips did not. Torchy Brown appeared first in the Pittsburgh Courier and then got picked up by 14 other black-owned newspapers around the country. Throughout the 1940s, Orms worked on a different comic series, a little sister, big sister story called Patty Joe, and Ginger. But Torchy Brown returned in the 1950s and was a hit with the comics accompanied by fashionable paper doll cutouts.
2: He was a famous trumpet man from our Chicago way. He had a boogie style that no one else could play. He was the top man at his craft. But then his number came up and he was gone with the draft. He's in the army now, a blowin' revelry. He's the boogie-woogie bugle boy of
3: Company B. They
0: made him Leading up to World War II, comics started to change. From stories about cute kids and big city adventures to darker plot lines revolving around heroes and crime fighting. In the 1930s, someone got the bright idea to start collecting comic strips into books.
1: Yeah, so so the books were usually uh, these anthologies of just various, you know, crime stories or detective stories. They're kind of based on pulp fiction, a lot of them. And you would have action comics or detective comics and these titles that wouldn't necessarily be based on one character. So in it, you would have multiple characters, and the first Superman appeared in a comic called Action Comics, and it was just simply one story
0: among many stories. We read a lot about the creators of Superman and Batman, but in the run-up to World War II, there were women making action hero comics, too. In
1: 1939, this female artist by the name of Tarp Mills, her original name, I believe, had been June Mills, and she started drawing action heroes and creating action heroes such as Daredevil, Barry Finn, the Purple Zombie, and Catman.
0: I've never heard of uh, Purple Zombie or Catman. (laughs) What were these heroes like? Do you know? Uh, You
1: know, I know there were so many. Uh, That's the thing. People were just churning them out. And
0: uh, just, just so few have survived. After creating a bunch of male action heroes, artist Tarp Mills turned her attention to Miss Fury, a socialite who by night would fight bad guys and solve mysteries while wearing the costume of a panther. Miss Fury inspired many other costumed superheroes. So there was Phantom
1: Lady, Miss Mask, Spider Widow, all these really fascinating... Spider Widow? Yeah, (laughs) they were all... Not related to Spider-Man? Not at all, no. Most of them were just wealthy women who put on costumes and fought
0: crime because it was fun, and that, that was kind of where they got to be their true selves. Another hero of the time was intrepid and glamorous newspaper reporter Brenda Starr, who female artist Dale Messick debuted in 1940. And she drew the strip
1: about this reporter um, who was a very beautiful, stylish woman, but also very independent and spirited who went on a lot of adventures and um, questioned a lot of the establishment. The interesting thing is that men had never had a problem before with women drawing these cute kids or flappers. But at the time, Brenda Starr cute created this huge uproar because she was a female character and a fe- drawn by a female artist
0: in a male-dominated genre, which was action-adventure. Though she got pushback from male creators, at the height of Brenda Starr's success, her bulldog reporting was seen and printed in more than 250 newspapers. And then, of course, in 1941, Wonder Woman made her debut, snaring violent warmongers in her golden lasso of truth. World War II was a hot time for superheroes, and as many men working in the industry were sent overseas, numerous female artists and writers got the chance to start working in comics
4: she 's part of the assembly she 's making history working for victory Rosie. The keeps the There were
1: superheroes, and there were also women who were simply war heroes and a lot of the men who were comic book artists. Were sent overseas and women took their place. While the men were overseas, they were also reading a lot of comics. So there was a huge market, and women here in the home front had an opportunity to write stories about women as heroes. Barbara Hall created a character called Blonde Bomber and a comic called Girl Commandos, which featured multiple women heroes of all different ethnicities. Now, what- I am curious about girl commandos. What happened in girl commandos? Trina Robbins describes it as this female United Nations commando group. <laughs> that sounds awesome. And each each woman represented a different country that was being attacked by the Nazis, and they all came together to fight the Nazis.
0: But when the war ended... Comics went the way of many industries in the United States. Well, so
1: when the men came back from the war, they wanted their jobs back. Most of the women had been hired on contract, so they just didn't get rehired, basically lost their jobs. And the heroes the women were drawing just disappeared.
0: The switch was so pronounced that when the National Cartoonist Society was formed in 1946, the all-male group excluded women. Cartoonist Hilda Terry sent the group a letter saying they needed to either let women in or change the name of the group to the National Male Cartoonist Society. After she refused to drop the issue, the society finally let her in, and a couple other women too. Comics at the time were rife with juicy storylines. There were popular horror comics, pulpy crime comics, and steamy romance comics. Then, in 1954, the industry transformed again.
2: The real question is this. Are comic books good, or are they not good? If you want to raise a generation that is half stormtroopers and half cannon fodder, with a dash of illiteracy, then comic books are good. In fact, they are perfect
0: in nineteen fifty four, psychiatrist Frederick Wortham published a book called "Seduction of the Innocent." It immediately caught the nation's attention.
1: and one of the things he said that was that Wonder Woman uh, was her independence uh, was damaging to both men and women. She was seen as an emasculating figure who encouraged lesbianism.
0: And he said that comics in general encouraged juvenile delinquency. Fearing that comic books would be banned or regulated by the government, the major comic book publishers wrote up a list of rules called the Comics Code. The publishers agreed that they would not print books that contained violence, obvious sexuality, or any homosexuality. At this time, Wonder Woman lost a lot of her BDSM overtones. And just to make it clear that there was nothing romantic going on between Batman and Robin, DC introduced Batwoman, whose utility purse was full of weapons disguised as lipstick, charm bracelets, and hairnets. The numerous pulpy crime fighters of yesteryear faded away and mainstream comics became squeaky clean stories for kids. A decade later, edgier artists who wanted to make something not so clean and government approved started producing and distributing their own comics. The genre of underground comics was born.
4: They say
3: I'm
0: Headquartered in San Francisco and publishing innovative and mind bending collections like Zap Comics and strips like The Fabulous Furry Freak Brothers, the underground comics scene was boundary pushing and groundbreaking in a lot of ways. But the scene was not very welcoming to women.
1: Right. Well, it's interesting because at the time, some of the most prominent underground comics artists were um, Robert Crumb and Gilbert Shelton, uh, Vaughn Bodie, and Their depiction of women was often very violent or uh, very
0: exploitive. Artist Trina Robbins, who went on to write a history of women in comics called Pretty in Ink, was just getting her start at the time. Trina Robbins told Lisa Hicks about what it was like to be part of the San Francisco alternative comics scene in the late 1960s and early 1970s.
1: She was telling me about how she came to San Francisco hoping to join the underground comic scene and really felt shut out and not included, and specifically by the male cartoonist whom she feels were really threatened by women's liberation. And she said that the publishers, um, including The Printment and Last Gasp, were actually very friendly to women comic artists, but that the men um, were holding on to their privilege and felt very threatened, that their privilege was very threatened by Um, having to listen to women's voices.
0: So Trina Robbins and other women who wanted to make underground comics at the time started printing their own comics and making their own scene. The Berkeley-based feminist newspaper It Ain't Me, Babe printed some of her comics and they put together a book of all women's comics. In 1972, Last Gasp Publishing printed the book Women's Comics. That's W-I-M-M-E-N-S and comics with an X. The comics were a range of visual styles some trippy, some psychedelic art, some pen and ink, and dealt with a bunch of different topics, including dating, queerness, and being a hippie. Despite the skepticism of the dudes, women's comics was a huge hit. The anthology wasn't a flash in the pan, it ran all the way from 1972 to 1992. Women's comics wasn't the only outlet for women in the underground comics scene. Other women artists printed their comics in small newspapers or made their own series, like Joyce Farmer and Lynn Cheveley, who started up a raunchy and joyfully sexual women's comics anthology they called Tits and Clits. It ran for 15 years. They were sold usually in head shops, and
1: usually they sold out every run they had. Um, but it, eventually it got harder and harder to find the comics, so women wanted to read them
0: but getting the distribution got harder. Throughout the late 1970s and 1980s, the industry of comics kept changing. Newsstands stopped carrying comics as much, and the people who had grown up reading comic books were now adults with money of their own to spend. A new genre of stores opened called comic
1: book stores, and um, it's interesting because I have friends who own a comic book store, and they're great, so it's not a generalization I'd make about all comic book stores, but I think at the time... Um, A lot of them that opened were focused on superheroes and focused
0: on uh, male customers. Comic book shops in the 1980s were notoriously not welcoming to women. Culturally, many female fans say they felt excluded and sneered at in the stores. Comics geared toward women were not likely to find much shelf space, since the people who ran the comic shops were mostly guys who'd grown up on superhero comics, not avid fans of tits and clits. Within the mainstream industry, it was just as bad. At one point in the 1980s, the major publishers DC and Marvel had only one woman in creative between them. You'd be more likely to find women doing comics in alt-weekly newspapers. Linda Berry and Alison Bechtel both published their innovative comics in weekly papers at this time. Their pen-and-ink style and personal stories ran counter to the mainstream comics trend at the time. At Marvel and DC, stories about macho men were king publishers wanted stories of heroes who could be easily turned into a gold mine of figurines, TV shows and highly profitable merchandise. (laughs) Women, when they appeared at all in these stories, were not intrepid girl commandos or daring and dapper reporters, but busty broads who contorted on collectible covers as nothing more than eye candy. But even Conan didn't have the strength to hold on to the industry forever. In the early 1990s, women in the comics industry started organizing to meet up and support each other. After a packed all-women meetup at San Diego Comic-Con, they formed a group called Friends of Lulu. Meanwhile, it was getting easier than ever to make your own comics. With the rise of Riot Girl and DIY culture in the early 1990s, many young women started making and Xeroxing their own stories. So you had these sort of rough
1: and arty, um, punky almost kind of comics, and some of these included um, Mary Fleener's Sletburger, Megan Kelso's Girl Hero, Jessica Abel's Art Babe, Sarah Dyer's Action Girl, um... So there's this whole wave of women just doing comics themselves.
0: At the same time, artists were starting to put together longer, often serious comics that could be bound like other books. In 1992, Art Spiegelman's story of the Holocaust, Mouse, became the first graphic novel to win the Pulitzer Prize. Not only did graphic novels expand the scope of the stories that comics could tell, but where they could be sold also changed. They weren't just sold at comic book shops, but at chain bookstores. That means people who would have been sneered at in the comic book shops could get their hands on some comics at Borders or Barnes & Noble. And then came manga. In 1997, Japanese hit Sailor Moon was translated into English. It sold especially well with girls. And suddenly bookstores were expanding their manga and graphic novel sections to appeal to new readers. People were realizing, like, oh yeah,
1: girls do read comics, girls do like comics, which... To me, it seems very silly because as a girl, I liked comics. I read Archie, and I think a lot of girls did, or it seems very
0: silly that they would say that. These days, women are still working to make the comics industry more inclusive. Mainstream comics are still dominated by men, both behind the scenes and in the stories that are told. But the Internet has allowed a generation of self-publishers to put their own comics out to audiences with no publisher needed making comics careers for artists like Kate Beaton of Hark a Vagrant and Hyperbole and a Half's Ali Brash. Meanwhile, on the 2014 bestseller list, newer titles featuring excellent female characters and creators like Ms. Marvel and the anti-war space drama Saga are duking it out with the pillars of the industry like Spider-Man and Thor.
1: I think the internet has really opened up the world in a way that people have more of a voice and more of a voice to ask for what they want. I think that the comic book publishers are slow to respond, but I think they're starting to respond, and particularly Marvel, and so I think there is a ray of hope.
0: The comics industry is always in the process of transforming, one way or another. But it seems like after years of comics fans pushing for the industry to be more inclusive, publishers are getting the message that they shouldn't ignore half of their potential readers. After all. Women have been making and reading comics since the beginning. Major thanks on this story to writer Lisa Hicks, whose collector's weekly article about the history of the comics industry, with lots of great pictures of Brenda Starr and many other old-timey comics, is called Women Who Conquered the Comics World. Artist Trina Robbins' book about the industry is called Pretty in Ink. Look it up. Hey, we're at the midpoint of the show here. If you like today's episode of Popaganda, do us a huge favor. Go to iTunes, look up Bitch, and rate and review this show. It really helps us get the show to more listeners like you. Oh, also, tell all of your friends about the show so they can listen in too. Okay, thanks. Let's keep moving. You're listening to Popaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. Today, we're talking about transformations. Recently, we've seen a transformation of the representation of transgender people in pop culture. Trans people are more visible in mainstream media than they were five years ago. From Laverne Cox on Orange is the New Black to Caitlyn Jenner on the cover of Vanity Fair to Janet Mock anchoring her own MSNBC web show to actress Jamie Clayton starring in brand new Netflix show Sense8. To discuss this change and what it means for the everyday lives of transgender people, Equity Foundation Executive Director Carol Collymore sat down for a conversation with two transgender advocates who were also pop culture consumers. Stacey Rice, who is the co executive director at the Q Center, an LGBTQ advocacy center here in Portland, and Jace Montgomery, who's a student at George Fox University, talked with Carol about transgender issues and pop culture. My name is Carol Collymore, executive director of the Equity Foundation,
5: and really thrilled to host this conversation about transgender people in popular culture. And so I'll let you all introduce yourselves, whoever would like to go first.
4: Hi, I'm Stacey Rice, co-executive director of Q Center. I identify as a trans woman, been transitioned for 15 years now. And very happy to be here to have this discussion today.
3: Thank you. Um, I'm Jace Montgomery. I'm a student um, currently at George Fox University. Um, And I'm just really happy to be here to continue the conversation um, of educating um, people about trans issues and yeah.
5: Great. Well, I'm so glad you guys agreed to have this conversation. So I will just jump right in. How did pop culture influence your own life when you were thinking about your gender identity when you were younger or when you weren't younger? <laughs>
3: um, for me, I didn't actually watch a lot of TV or really when I was younger. I didn't really listen to a lot of you know radio or stuff like that. Um, but I remember the first time really kind of thinking about gender was when, when was excuse me was when I watched uh, She's the Man. Um, and I remember the basketball movie. No, it's it's basically about a girl who, um, you know, her soccer team gets um, booted from yes, the school, I remember. and so she, she, you know, she she wants to continue to play soccer. Um, so she uh, dresses as a male and attends her brother's school, who is her twin, and you know, plays on the guy's soccer team. Um, so that's the, that's the first time I really remember thinking about gender, you know, the different roles that people play. Um, so yeah.
5: Was it a moment that you were saying, I wish I could do that? Like yeah. I wish I could be Amanda yeah. Bynes in this movie? Yeah,
3: I, I definitely was like, I want to do that. I wish I could just, you know, you know, be a girl and then, you know, be a boy whenever I want to. Um but at that time I was like, you know, is that really possible? You know, maybe it's easier just to stick with, you know, the lesbian identity. So
4: mm-hmm. Yes, uh well, I was a child uh before the internet era. And before maybe a lot of pop culture actually had kind of seeped into the consciousness actually of of our culture today, uh, so it was a little it was. There were just barely glimpses, actually, of what maybe could be or what was. Um, I remember that one of the first times it really connected with me in a pretty big way was back in 1972. It's a long time ago. There was a Lou Reed song that came out, "Walk on the Wild Side," and as part of the, the core, part of one of the the, um, the uh, lyrics, actually, of that song is that that uh, this particular character, uh, you know, shaved her legs and he became a she. Plucked her eyebrows on the way, shaved her legs, and then he was a she. She says, "Hey, babe, take a walk on the wild side." And I was thought, well, "Wait, maybe I can do this." <laughs> so yeah, so the outside of that, there wasn't really a lot. You just, like I said, you just got barely glimpses here and there of. Of, I mean, I knew from you know five years old that. That something just didn't quite fit, uh, that I was, uh, everybody treated me like this little boy they saw, but I felt like a little girl, and really didn't have a great way actually to explain that, especially during that time period, because I mean, where do you you know, we have three television channels, so where do you see someone that's actually trans, you know, and, and kind of maybe connect with them? So, there was a lot of time spent digging into college libraries, other places, trying to find a shred of information about that. It's, I mean, to me, I think one of the most amazing inventions, besides the, I mean, this kind of understatement, but is the internet, because it actually helped trans people connect, mm-hmm. to see that there were other people out there that you could kind of build community with, so...
5: You grew up in North Carolina, right? I did, yes. yes. Okay. Was there anybody there you could identify with, even just in the sort of mainstream LGB community, to, to sort of start that first step of identification?
4: Oh, yes, actually. Well, there were. Uh, there was actually one of my cousins uh, who identifies as gay now, uh, but of course at that time that wasn't even spoken. Uh, but I could. I could... I could feel a kindred, you know, kin kinship actually with with my cousin like, well wait, okay. This is a person that's as well not quite fitting in those little boxes that people had at that time. And it it kind of started expanding my horizons that there were people actually that kind of were outside of those boxes and that maybe my box wasn't well I think was okay. You know, I just had to figure that out though. Mm-hmm.
5: So now that we are, it's 2015. There's, there are shows, there's Orange is the New Black, there is um, now Keeping Up with the Kardashians, is gonna have a spinoff for, for Caitlyn Jenner. How does that impact you now as you walk through the world? And do you feel like that is any reflection on you, to you, for you, positively or negatively? We'll chase.
3: Um, I'm really excited about that, you know, they're putting more trans people and displaying them more in the correct manner. Because, um, you know, You know, this happened, you know, with, you know, gay individuals as well as lesbian individuals, Um, you know, always displaying them in the stereotypical, you know, masculine, this is the man, this is the woman role, Um, and not really delving into, like, their background and what they actually go through. So I'm really excited to see more characters, um, LGBTQ and trans, that are more, you know, well-rounded, and they actually, like, get into their lives and, you know, their experience as that individual, so.
4: Yes, we really have reached a tipping point, I think, with with trans issues and trans visibility. I mean, one of the things I've always thought the trans community had working against them on some level is the fact, at least in my generation, you you wanted to blend in. You didn't want to be out. You wanted to be for a safety issue, actually. So what happens is that people maybe knew a trans person but they didn't really know that they knew a trans person. So I think now with this visibility of all these amazing folks that are being out there on the front pages and the front lines, it's going to do nothing but help, actually, because I think it's a huge platform that these folks have had to be able to tell a very authentic trans story to the world. And it's really going to do nothing but help us and as people that come after us, actually, that are transgender. I mean, it, it takes a lot of that mystery away. It takes a lot of that, I don't know what this really is. And yeah, it's brilliant. I mean, I just, I never, to be honest with you, I never thought I would really see this in my lifetime, actually. It's wonderful, yeah.
5: Uh, Jace, talk to me a little bit about um, what it means when somebody like Laverne Cox, who is who is mm-hmm. trans and a person of color, specifically mm-hmm. a black person. Um, obviously, people of color have a harder time in any category at any time of life. It doesn't matter what it is; we're going to be struggling. So, how is it for you in your reality, and how has she helped, or does she even help at all, mm-hmm. as you you know make it through your journey now?
3: Yeah, um, as a trans person, you know, especially a trans person who's African American, um, there's a lot of obstacles, you know, that go with you know being a person of color, mm-hmm. um, and then being trans on top of that. Um, You know, just adds a double barrier. So it's really nice to see an African, especially an African-American woman. So you got the intersectionality going on. um, Really, you know, step out and, you know, be open about herself. Um, And it just encourages me to, you know, be, you know, not be scared and, you know, be willing to step out and know that um, even though I may be scared and nervous, that other people are always learning and, uh, you know, um, using me or, you know, anybody else as an example. Um, so, yeah.
5: So, Stacey, I was reading an article on, on, it was it's not really an article, it was an op-ed piece in the New York Times where uh, the author was saying that she felt it was unfair that Caitlyn Jenner got to define feminism and, and she was not allowed because she just became a woman and had been a man before. And so to me, I thought, well, that isn't necessarily what I understand from trans people is that you just don't get to decide it. 40 or 60, that you're suddenly the the opposite gender. Um, so I'm wondering if you had thoughts on that and, and what that means for your own femininity or lack thereof, or whatever it is, however you choose to define yourself. Oh,
4: sure. I, well, that conversation is, is really raging in uh, radical feminists, the feminist circles and the trans community as well, too. Uh, there is part of me that understands uh... where uh... feminists who grew up in the fifties and sixties and seventies uh... where they're coming from because i was in that era too i understood exactly what that patriarchy was and and it was you know we had not made a lot of changes at that time so that's been their lived experience actually Um uh, but I think what has to happen now, actually, is that we have—we all have to evolve. We all have to get to a different place. I think because this world is changing, ideas are changing, people are changing. Um, it was—it was a really interesting op-ed to read, and um, I. Um, I guess I can what I can say about that, at least from, from like what you mentioned about what, what this person said in the op-ed is that I mean, I knew, I mean from I mean maybe even before five that, that I was really female, and of course I had there was no way to accomplish that. So um, so sure, I've lived through, you know 40 years in my male life and, and that has had certain privileges, which I do understand that. Uh, but it's I would be very hard-pressed to say that my experience is as a woman It's maybe I mean I could never have a baby I mean so I mean it's a different experience but I think there's lots of uh, genetically born or cis women who actually who uh, actually have experienced things that other women can't either so I mean so it's going to continue to evolve, you know. It's 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 gonna it's gonna be fine, I think, as we move forward.
5: Jace, what did what did your how did your friends react when you started to tell them um, that you were a man?
3: <laughs> well, my friends actually reacted pretty well. They already kind of knew, you know, I was you know the typical butch lesbian, um, you know, dressed like a guy. Um, so when I came out, it wasn't that big of a surprise. The you know where they struggled the most was you know with the pronouns the name and all of that. But really it was it was easy, easy go, luckily. So no, I'm fortunate so. for that. Very fortunate.
5: That's amazing generational change for sure. <laughs> yeah. uh, nice. There was, back to the idea of, you know, what is feminism and what is masculinity, Um, there was a a trans man out of Eugene, I believe, who entered the contest to be on the cover of Men's Health magazine, and he was ripped and push-ups and whatever. And I thought, especially with uh, Caitlyn Jenner on the cover of Vanity Fair, is there now going to be pressure for folks who are trans to then now fit into the conventional beauty standards that we've created
4: Oh, that's, that's a great question. Yeah, it's really interesting of making the transition that I did. It, it was fascinating to all of a sudden realize that I felt those pressures. I mean, that here I was, you know, very tall, and 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 I, I was really puzzled while I was starting to feel that pressure that I needed to fit into a certain way. But, but I think it kind of goes, well, at least for myself, and, and I think, uh, uh, I don't know if I, I can speak for a lot of trans people, but I think at least for myself, I mean, you have to come to that realization that you have to be exactly who you are. I mean, this mm-hmm. is the package. This is who you are. And you make the most of that. I don't know. I think it would sh- be a mistake if people assumed when they saw, you know, those two folks, that that was actually the norm for everybody in the community. I mean, as, as we all know, the trans community is extremely diverse. Mm-hmm. And so, but it's, I mean, it's great to have them out there. I mean, they're, you got to have those folks that are out there in the front. Yeah,
5: and Jace, you're a sporty. Mm-hmm. You love yeah. the sports. Yeah. How did that, did that cover give you any pressure or just make you excited? Like I could now also be on the cover of Men's Health. Yeah. Like, what I was mean, your it reaction? Makes,
3: it makes me excited, but um, it'd be dumb for me to say that I don't, you know, succumb to society's mm-hmm. gender rules. Um, I definitely do. You know, being able to switch from female to male or vice versa, you're really able to see how boxed everything is. It's unbelievable. And you're really able to see how much you actually play into that yourself. Um,
5: Ooh, tell me, say more about that. Say more about yeah, that what what your role down, was yeah. as a woman, mm-hmm. what your role is as a man. That's really yeah, interesting. I mean, you know, as a
3: woman, I mean, I've always been a very, you know, strong, not like strong, but like, you know, very assertive. Um, but, you know, as a woman, you're not, you're not supposed to be assertive. You know, you're supposed to take back, mm-hmm. sit back and let, you know, the males do what they're going to do. Um, and so, I always had a problem with that. I was like, "Why? Like, why does that exist?" Um, but you know, you know, transitioning to male, um, there's a lot of um, social pressure from friends, and not even I don't even think they mean to necessarily you know push people in a certain way, but it's just you know the comments that they make, um, the way that they treat you, um, you know, you know, conversations are very sexual, um, mm-hmm. so just stuff like that. And I think the most important thing is being aware that we all play into those stereotypes. And being able to be like, okay, yes, I did that. You know, how can I do this better next time? Or how can I change this is really important, so.
4: Yeah, what a unique journey we have, actually, that we can actually experience life, you know, on both sides. I mean, it's really, it's, I mean, I look at that as a blessing, actually. Yeah. I mean, that you can kind of see see life from those two different, well, very binary areas. But I, I'll never forget the first time after I transitioned and, and I was working in an office and, and uh, this manager came to me and says, Oh, honey, you may not know much about this computer. Let me show you what that is. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, here we go. <laughs> I mean, I always knew that existed, but it was like, wow, okay. And I thought, and I thought, gosh, I know more than you do, <laughs> you know. And it was so, it was like, wow, okay. But but that was a, that was a lovely experience as well. You I know, mean, it, it made me angry, but I could see how well that really is there. It's it's part of life.
5: Have either of you, um, because of your. Um, uh, identification been harassed, assaulted, um, anywhere where you felt like you were physically in danger. Um, well, personally, not,
3: not really. Um, except you know, online. You know that always happens behind mm. the screen. People say a lot of bad stuff. Um, but I've been really lucky. But you know, a lot of the the anxiety um, and the I guess feeling scared is. Just knowing the violence that can happen yes, to trans people yes. um, and knowing that people at my school do know my identity, um, you know people that i didn't necessarily want to tell but you know now know because of the media um, you know just being afraid to walk home you know I'm small if you know if three guys want to get me they're gonna, <laughs> they're gonna get mm-hmm. me um, so just having to live with that fear so it's kind of more of a indirect f- like fear that the Uh, Like society produces for trans people, if that makes sense, Um, and so that can be really debilitating and binding and scary. So.
4: Yeah. I mean, makes perfect sense. That's such a beautiful point, because I, I feel the exact same thing. I've had just a couple of minor issues where people, I've worked a lot of retail after I, trans, after I transitioned, and, and you know, a couple of people would make a remark to a co-worker, uh, you know, that they knew that I was trans, and, and not a very nice remark, actually, about it. But I'm the same way. I worry more about just because of the violence against trans folks and the fact that, you know, there's so many trans people are murdered every year in this world because of just being who they are. Uh, I'm always aware of, of where I am, what I'm doing. Uh, you know, it was a little more challenge in the South because I lived my whole life there until I moved to Portland three years ago, which is, it's a little easier here, thank goodness. But but I was always very cognizant of the fact that if I was roaming through the countryside somewhere out in the middle of nowhere and I need to go into a little grocery store or something, I mean, yeah, because you're thinking, this, this maybe could not end great. You know, so I kind of was always... And it, 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 it's a very sad thing to think about that we kind of have that potential violent thing hanging over us. But it's real. I mean, it's yeah. very real.
5: You know, we've got some fair representation on TV. And now we've got Janet Mock with a new show on MSNBC, which is only online. So hopefully one day we'll get her to the to the actual screen. But what is it that we're missing? Cis people are and straight people are missing about um and what, we sh- what should we be talking about?
4: Oh, yeah, I, I, there's a whole multitude of issues, I think, that fall kind of under this, that we have Janet Mock and Caitlin and, and Laverne Cox out there, but 99.9% of the other trans folks' experiences are really so much different than that. I mean, there's that great study that came out, was a couple of years ago, on transgender issues. I mean, it was like, what, 10,000 trans folks filled out this survey. I mean, it is stunning to see those numbers. How I mean, the, the super high percentage of trans people who've been homeless, you know, that have been fired from their job. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And so there's all these grassroots basic issues actually that we that needs. And I'm hoping that with this. Kind of template of okay, we're getting to know trans people that we can maybe have opportunities to maybe share. Okay, this is the reality for trans people. There's nothing more heartbreaking, and I share this story all the time, but it's just so true. There's nothing more heartbreaking than someone to come at Q, come to Houston, a trans woman, and be homeless, and we really have no place for them to go. We have uh, Right to Dream too is wonderful, and they they accept trans folks. So, and that happens more often than people realize that people show up here like that, and so yeah, we've got a ton of issues to to start focusing on now. yeah,
3: yeah there's there's still a lot of issues, um, you know, with just like legis- legislation and law and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Um, but one thing that I've really been you know looking at is you know the intersection between like masculinity and uh, trans people. Um, I think. You know, a lot of times we focus on the LGBTQ community, but I think we also need to be focusing on other stuff outside of it and how Mm -hmm. it's affecting the trans community. Um, I think, you know, basically masculinity is the rejection of anything that is, you know, feminine or seen as feminine. And I think that plays a really large role in how the trans community and the LGBTQ Mm -hmm. community is treated. um, Because basically, you know, gay, lesbian, transgender people are defying... And challenging, you know, patriarchy and what that means. Um, so I, I think if we really look at masculinity and how we're raising our young men and boys, um, that you know they can be emotional and it's okay to cry and do all this stuff. I think we would see a huge release on the LGBT community. So trying to look at more of those outside circles and how they intersect.
0: Carol Collymore, in conversation with Stacey Rice and Jace Montgomery. We've heard a lot about transformations on today's show. Body changes, industry changes, musical changes, I'll keep this goodbye short and sweet. I'll leave you with just one thought, one little quote about transformation from science fiction writer Octavia Butler. She said, all that you touch, you change. Thanks for listening. Papaganda is produced by the team here at Bitch Media. Bitch is an independent, non feminist media organization. We're entirely funded by our Beehive members, subscribers, and like-minded sponsors. So if you like today's episode of Popaganda, please become a member online at bitchmedia.org today. Let us know you liked the show in your order comments. Our jingle is by Mux and Owen Worker. Additional music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Look up their creative and minimalist sounds by going to Google and typing in sessions.blue. And the show is produced by Alex Ward at the studios of X-Ray FM, an independent radio station in Portland, Oregon. Thanks for listening.